Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. In Acts 16, we are told that the Philippian jailer called out to the Apostle Paul and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response, along with Silas, said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, that leads us into an interesting question, because that is the million-dollar question, is how is one to be saved? That's probably the most important question anyone could ever ask. And although it's a simple question, the answer ends up getting a little bit complicated, only in the sense that there is a somewhat significant controversy which centers around what one's relationship must be with the Lord in order to be a Christian or to be saved. Now, there are basically two ways to answer this question, what must I do to be saved? On the one hand, you have what theologians have termed the no lordship position, which is basically an answer to the lordship position, as we'll look, and that comes from a free grace theology position. And basically what this ideology would hold is that in order to be saved, in order for someone to be a Christian, you just need to put your faith in Christ and that's all that's required. Repentance and submission to the Lord are works and therefore not a part of the salvation experience. Or maybe to put it more accurately, they are not required for salvation to take place. All that's required is simple affirmation of faith in Christ, and that's what is required to be saved. So the key takeaway of this, then, is that you can have somebody who's a Christian, and their life can look exactly like a non-believer. It doesn't have to look any different, because repentance, obedience to Christ, are later acts of maturity and obedience. This kind of belief uh, really gives gives the definition of, and perhaps you've heard this before, a carnal Christian. When I was growing up in church, I heard this phrase a lot. And the carnal Christian is the idea of somebody who is a Christian who has put their faith in Christ. However, they live just like the world lives. And so there's this carnal Christian idea. And we'll talk maybe a little more about that in a little bit. Now, we're going to look a little bit at some proponents of this view And in so doing, uh, we're not going to look exhaustively at it, but I think there are a few uh, helpful examples of this. And in in looking at this, there's a really nice, I say little book, it's not very little, it's I think close to 500 pages, but Bruce Demarest has written a book called The Cross and Salvation, and in it he talks about lots of issues that relate to salvation uh, and sanctification. He talks about election. He talks about sanctification. He talks about salvation, uh, all sorts of issues. And he does have a section in there on the lordship controversy. And so a lot of the quotes that I'm giving are just the ones that he has laid out in his chapter. I'm not sure which chapters. I think it's chapter six. He lays out these different proponents. And I want to read a couple of the quotes just because they're nicely organized and synthesized here. The first one comes from Charles Ryrie, and Ryrie writes in his book, Balancing the Christian Life, the message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of life 
cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel, end quote. So what Ryrie's saying basically is that you can't have uh, you can't have somebody saying faith alone and then faith plus a life commitment to Christ. Those are different messages. One of them's the true gospel and one of them's not. Now, it's interesting because his, his belief is obviously that all you need to do is put your faith in Christ and there no, needs to be no life commitment, no nothing like that. That's his belief. He holds to the no lordship position. So he's essentially calling the lordship position heresy coming under Paul's condemnation there. Uh, this is a quote which he says, To make the conditions of the life of discipleship requirements for becoming a disciple is to confuse the gospel utterly by muddying the clear waters of the grace of God with the works of man. So notice that a key component of this position is that the assumption is that to repent or to submit your life to Christ is a work and you would be earning your salvation that way. Another proponent of this view would be Zane Hodges. He's probably one of the more famous ones. And he writes that faith is the inward conviction that what God says to us in the gospel is true. That and that alone is saving faith. So in other words, it's simply the belief that the gospel is true and that's all that is required by faith. Now there's other one, other individuals who hold that view, but I want to move on to uh, another to the lordship position and explain that sequence of events here. But I just want to give a little side note on my experiences. I grew up hearing preachers advocate the no lordship position a lot. And I just remember them saying, all you need to do is pray this prayer and then you're saved forever. And that's, that's all you need. And in one sense, when I was young, that was encouraging. Just saying like, oh, I can just unlock this thing forever. And then no matter what, I'm good to go. And that was kind of the idea. And I think it's a little more complicated than that, but that was some of the message that I was hearing from certain itinerant and traveling preachers. Now let's talk about the Lordship salvation position. And the definition of this position, in contrast to uh, putting an intellectual assent or faith in Christ for salvation, this position would say that putting faith in Christ for salvation must include, as part of faith, repentance from sin and submission to Christ as Lord. Now, the key to this is that when you put your faith in Christ, your life must look fundamentally different after you are saved. Otherwise, you are not truly putting your faith in Christ. Now, this was actually a key part of the Reformation because... In breaking from the Catholic Church, one of the accusations of the pro against the Protestants would have been that, hey, you're saying faith alone, that there's no works involved, so that's free licensure for sin and all that. That's just a very bad message. So the Reformers broke up their definition of faith into three parts, indicating that they were not just abandoning some sort of... Uh, action involved with faith. They, they divided it into three parts, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Hopefully my Latin pronunciations are correct there. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. So notitia is what we could call the content of faith. So that's what we are actually believing. So in one sense, in regard to Jesus, we would believe the, the fact or the content that Jesus is Lord, 
that he came to save us from our sins, that he died to do so. Those are the contents of what we are to believe. Now, a census is the conviction behind that, or maybe we could say it's the affirmation. So in other words, it's one thing to know the facts, but it's another thing to actually affirm that they're true, right? So the reformers discussed and made sure that there was an element in their definition of faith where it's not just a ideological or theoretical concept, but we actually affirm that this is true and hold it as our conviction. So it's our affirmation that this is true. And so that's the second major part of that. So you can't just say like, oh yeah, those are facts. No, I agree that these facts are true. That's the census part of it. But then there's also a third element of faith and that's fiducia. And this refers to the personal trust and reliance. In other words, this gets down to the action or the application. And the reformers were adamant that if you had true faith, you needed to see that played out. And I like to illustrate it with uh, the simple illustration of sitting on a chair. Uh, to know the facts that it, one can hypothetically sit on a chair is one thing. To affirm that someone is capable of sitting on the chair and the chair will sustain them. It won't, it won't break. It will support them. They'll be able to sit down, relax, and rest. Those are two components of faith. That's the notitia and the ascensus. I, I know the fact and I affirm that it is true. But if I never take the third step and actually sit in the chair, do I, am I really implementing faith? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm at minimum just affirming that something is true, but I'm not acting as if it's true. One of my professors always used to give the example of if someone comes in and tells you the house is on fire, you could go through that process in your mind. And if you never run out of the house, you don't actually, you aren't actually acting in accordance with your belief. If you are actually claiming that you believe the house is on fire, you're going to grab yourself, perhaps your family members, if you like them or not, and you're going to get out of the house. That is acting in accordance with your faith. And so the reformers defined faith in these three categories, three components of faith, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, in order to kind of stave off this idea that faith is a intellectual only assessment. No, they, they believed that there had to be action involved with this. So there are a variety of proponents of the lordship view today in current uh, literature. Uh, one of the most common is A.W. Tozer. He writes, for example, we take him, referring to God, for what he is, the anointed savior of the Lord, who is the king of kings and lord of hosts. He would not be, he, he would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without understanding that he can also guide and control our lives. So there's a clear affirmation by Tozer that Christ, I think I said God, but it's referring to Christ there, uh, is the one who is both the savior, but he also has that sovereignty where he can claim as a king of kings and lord of lords, uh, demand over our lives, complete control. John Stott is also listed, uh, J.I. Packer. One of the most famous in recent years is John MacArthur. He came out with a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. There are, there are a couple other ones, uh, like Hard to Believe, for example. That book was very influential in my life as I read that late in high school. And John, Mahar John MacArthur also sides with the Lordship uh, view, and he basically makes four major points in his observations. One, 
He notes that the call to salvation is a call to discipleship. So we're going to look at a passage like that in a, in a second. But when you look at the Gospels, especially Jesus's revelation and, and preaching to the people, he calls people to discipleship, which is essentially synonymous with a call to salvation. And so that's really important to understand. Number two, MacArthur observes that repentance is a critical element in saving faith. So, for example, MacArthur notes Matthew 4.17, Luke 5.32, and then with the apostles, Acts 3.19, 20.21, and 26.20. And in each of these instances, Jesus and his apostles call sinners to repent. That's their, that's their message to those who are sinners. It's not just put their faith in Christ, but it's synonymously believed that repentance is also identical with putting your faith. So in other words, they're two sides of the same coin, MacArthur is arguing, uh, on the basis of seeing how these passages where they are calling sinners to repent, they're, they're being described that way. And along with that, number three is that in biblical ideology, faith is inseparable from obedience. And this goes along with what we talked about with the Reformation, with those three categories of notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And when we look at it, biblically speaking, it does seem that when you have faith being described biblically, there always seems to be uh, action as a part of it. James 2 is a huge example of that, right? And uh, just talking about how faith has to have content for it to be real faith. But along with that, and I was going to do this later, but I'll do it right now. Uh, I, I ran a quick search because I think this is helpful with the idea of believing in scripture is the Greek word pistuo. But interestingly, if you search for it in the passive form, so in other words, normally of active form, I hit the ball or something like that. But if it's passive, that means you were hit. So I was hit is passive. No longer am I doing the action, but now I'm receiving the action. Well, belief, pistuo in the Greek, can actually be a passive verb. There are nine occurrences in the New Testament. And what I think is really important is that in these occurrences, there is a action that's transferable. For example, there's a couple really good examples. Uh, in Galatians 2.7, for example, pistuo is used passive uh, and it's translated by the ESV saying, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. That's the same word there as believe, but it's in the passive. So you can't really, you can't really translate that as I was believed with the gospel. That obviously doesn't make sense. So how are you trying to work that out? Well, the idea of belief doesn't, doesn't really capture the entire semantic range of the word. And so entrusted kind of captures the idea of the fact that there is, there is a, action that's involved here that that Paul is being actually entrusted with the gospel to preach to the others. He's not God's not just saying, "Okay, I believe that you're going to do it" or anything like that. No. Paul is actually taking action uh because God has commissioned him to do something. So that's I think an important example. 1 Thessalonians 2:4 is another example. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So in other words, that same word there is used in the passive. And all that I'm trying to communicate by that point is that 
faith or belief in biblical terminology, pistuo, communicates more than just intellect. There's all, there's obviously an action involved as is communicated by the fact that it's used in the passive nine times. So that's, I think, an important affirmation as, as we work through that. So when we think through all of those examples, uh, it's important that I think we affirm that maybe in our English mind, we tend to think of belief as simply an intellectual activity, but from biblical terminology, there is more to it than just a intellectual belief. And then I uh, forgot to, I left off with number three, but number four for MacArthur, he notes that in the biblical worldview, one must confess Christ's lordship to be saved. So obviously one of the biggest examples of that is Romans 10, 9, right? And in Romans 10, 9, you have Paul saying that if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice the front part of that is that Jesus is Lord. Now what free grace theology proponents will say is that, oh, that is an affirmation that Jesus is deity. Obviously that's the only way salvation can work. Well, Deity is often included in the word kurios in, in Lord, but not exclusively so. And there is an element throughout the New Testament of the claim that even used for people who are not Jesus, kurios is often used as a title of, you could say sovereignty, you could say authority. It's, it's an affirmation of one's betterment of somebody who has authority over you. And so even in Romans 10, 9, there seems to be a very clear affirmation that salvation, uh, which is what Romans 10, 9 and 10 are talking about, uh, revolves around the fact that we confess, we agree with the fact, in other words, that Jesus is Lord. That's the affirmation. That's also backed up by other scriptures like Acts 2, 21, 2, 36, uh, 16, 31 uh, is similar to that as well. So MacArthur says, quote, it is clear that people who come to Christ for salvation must do so in obedience to him, that is, with a willingness to surrender to him as Lord. So now when we think about all these passages, I've, I've tried to give like a brief survey of different people who hold these two views and what the implications are for that. Uh, I think one of the things we need to do now is we need to go through uh, Luke 14, one of one of my favorite passages on dealing with the issue of whether or not we need to affirm Christ as Lord. And in Luke 14, 25, we have a sequence of events here where Jesus has these great crowds around him. We, we see that in verse 25, and he turns to them and starts teaching them. So the content of his teaching begins in Luke 14, 26, and he says this, if anyone comes to me, now that phrase in John 6 is actually used as synonymous with salvation, one who believes in him. Now, obviously this is Luke, so we're working with a different author, but throughout the gospels, it's assumed that if you're coming to Jesus, if you're following him, you are by virtue of that act, professing your allegiance to him and your, your association with him. So if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that 
that's pretty crazy if you think about the standard that Jesus is raising here for his would-be followers. In fact, it's interesting because a lot of the churches that I grew up in, and I, I assume some of the listeners have been a part of in their lives as well, offer more of a what's called an easy believism in in the idea of, oh, just try Jesus, give it a shot. If you don't like it, you can always stop or you can always go back. But once you try it, you won't want to go back. That's kind of the message that's being given. Well, in contrast to that, you have Jesus's very clear message here that says, if you are going to come to me, you need to reject everything, all your relationships that you hold dear, your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even your your own life, all your desires, who you want to be, everything about you, all of that needs to be subservient to me, to your relationship with me, or else you cannot be my disciple. That's his call here. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be associated with me, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, then this is this is the cost. And the cost goes up, by the way. It's not just sacrificing relationships. In verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, there he's calling for a willingness to die and not even not even just die, but die in a very excruciating, painful way, a crucifixion death. People would have been very familiar in first century AD of the pain and the suffering involved in crucifixion. Obviously, it was a very common form of punishment under the Roman occupation. And then uh, later on in verse 33, I think it's helpful to mention this here. He says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, not only do you need to be willing to give up your relationships, you need to be willing to give up your very life if necessary. And by the way, anything you own, all your possessions, all of those need to be willing to be given up for my sake. You don't hold on to anything for me. That's what it is. And then it's interesting because in verses 28 and following, he gives two illustrations, two semi-parables, if you will. He gives in verse 28, the example of the one who wants to build a tower and the one who sits down to build a tower if he's going to do that correctly, he doesn't just start building. No, he sits down and plans. He first sits down and counts the cost. He counts the cost and sees whether or not he has enough to complete it. Because otherwise, if he starts to build and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him mocks him. That's verse 20, 29. Well, similarly, in verse 31, there's no king who goes out to war unless he thinks, hey, can I win this battle? Verse 31 uh, will he not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to beat the one or to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000? And if he can't win, while the other one's a great way off, he's going to send a delegation and ask for terms of peace, peace because it's way better to be alive at the end of the day than to be dead. That's the common axiomatic lifestyle. It's the way we cling to life. So that, those are just two illustrations saying, listen, listen to what I'm saying, people. Don't take this decision lightly. If you're going to come to me, if you're going to be associated with me, if you're going to submit your life to me, this is something that you need to take very, very seriously. You need to consider whether or not it's worth it to you because there are there's no there's no halfway Christians here. That's not what Jesus is is talking about. This is a full commitment operation and Jesus is talking to the crowds here. He's, he's, he's giving a general invitation. He's not just talking 
to his 12 disciples or anything like that. No, he's giving a, a discussion. Anyone who wants to come to Jesus, well, this is the standard. So that's, that's a very high standard, certainly. In fact, I often say that, uh, nobody would come to this, nobody would come to Jesus under this standard unless the Holy Spirit drew them because this is too high. I don't want to give up my desires, my dreams. I don't want to do this, except it's the only way. So going on then, we have already looked at uh, the key components of faith with regard to how the Greek definition of pistuo operates. And one more thing I should say about that. Faith, as I, I mentioned James 2 already, but faith cannot be a mere intellectual assent, obviously, because in James 2.19, it says even the demons believe and they tremble. So in other words, the demons have a intellectual affirmation that something is true, but obviously they don't, that does not run their lives. They have not committed themselves to that. So it can't simply be a intellectual assent. In his book, uh, The Cross and Salvation, Bruce Demerst gives a few more uh, scriptures that help shed light on the debate. He notes that in some passages, like Matthew 4.17, Luke 13.3, Acts 2.38, 3.19, Scripture employs repentance alone language. But in other passages, like Luke 8.12, Acts 16.31, many passages in John, we see faith alone being mentioned. But there are other passages where both faith and repentance are included, Matthew 21, 32, Mark 1, 15, Acts 20, 21, and Hebrews 6, 1. So what that means, I mean, what do we do with that? Since sometimes repentance is only mentioned, sometimes faith is only mentioned, and then sometimes both are mentioned. Well, I think it's obvious, like many scripture passages, is that each context is given for a specific reason for a specific audience to emphasize certain things. But both are included in some passages as a totality, giving the important emphasis that they are two parts of the same process. So I think it's accurate with Bruce Bruce Demerst, as he says, it is impossible to sever repentance from the faith that saves. And so he says, quote, repentance involves turning from the old way of life and renouncing every known sin It involves the decision to relinquish all of our idols, false loves, and splendid vices in order to come to Christ. For conversion to be genuine, the penitent must, as far as he or she can determine, turn from all ungodly loyalties. And he goes on to say there is no such thing as partial repentance. Well, I know that there's a lot more to be said on this issue because there's a lot of books that are written out there. There's a lot of sermons that have been preached and all that. But... My throat is kind of bugging me. I've been fighting a sickness for the last couple weeks, so I don't really have too much left in the tank, but we can review some of this again at another time. But I do want to give kind of a conclusion and give kind of an application of what all this means, because I think this is important too. On the one hand, when we look through scripture, I think, and we've only just looked at just a brief uh, smattering of passages, if you want to say it that way. But I do think that submission and repentance are a part of the gospel call of both Christ and the apostles. And I think that this is a really important mindset to have, that repentance is a key call of the gospel, that you aren't allowed just to add Christ to your life. It's not 
just as as I think MacArthur has said on a couple different times, the gospel is not a makeover, it's a takeover. That's what it is. And we submit to Christ as Lord for that. And by application, I, I would just say this, because this, this concerns me greatly, is that there are a lot of churches with a lot of people who think that because they've said a prayer or that they believe in God, or even because they go to church a couple times a year, they think they're saved. But their lives tell a different story. And I'm, I'm just concerned that along with others, as described in Matthew 7, they will get to heaven on the judgment day and they will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now that's, that's a scary, scary prospect, but I think that there are a lot of people who assume that they're, they have a relationship with God when their lives tell a very, very different story. And so I just want to encourage all you as listeners not to fall into that category, uh, to make sure your relationship is real with the Lord. But then even in just how we assess situations, I think that sometimes we need to, we need to be real with the fact that some people who claim to be Christians might not be if they're living in sin. I remember distinctly working with somebody who was dealing with pornography and they were struggling with it. And we went for months trying to make any headway of just ridding him of that habit. And I just remember being super frustrated with him. And we were just working through and there was no progress. And finally, we were just talking about it. And he was very open and honest. And he just said, you know what? I just love, I love this sin more than I love God. And that seems to be evidence of the fact that I might not be a Christian. And I was, I was actually, that was progress to me because I think that that was a really important realization on his part is that his life, he claimed one thing with his life, but he, he really loved sin. And I think that that was an important uh, step. And thankfully, I, I do think that was a major turning point in that whole situation, because I think that that really cast the situation into a whole new light. And we were able to make a lot more progress from that point on. But I think it's worth noting, too, at this point, that those who hold to lordship salvation, at least everyone that I'm aware of, and myself included, being one who holds to that position, would affirm that there are seasons of life and people who are Christians who struggle at times with sin. Okay, that's that's part of the fall. In fact, the book of 1st 2nd Corinthians, or I should say the books of 1st 2nd Corinthians, give evidence that there are believers who struggle with very powerful sin. And so we, we need to acknowledge that fact and that just because someone has sin in their life doesn't mean that they're an unbeliever. But on the other hand, we do need to be wise and understand that if we do, if we are submitting to Christ and pursuing him, if we're repenting from our sin, our lives should look different than an unbeliever. There, there shouldn't be a prolonged period. And I say prolonged, I mean, who can define what that is? In other words, you shouldn't get to the end of your life and say like, oh, throughout the whole life, my life looked always the same as an unbeliever. I mean, that's not a true evidence of a real believer, according to scripture. So I think we need to think carefully about that. Well, anyway, I, this is probably a powder cake for a lot of people. So if you have any questions or comments, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. You can reach out to me at peter at petergaming.com. If you want more information about me, you can visit the website, petergaming.com. 
or if you want more information about Shepherd's Theological Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.